Please turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua, the sixth chapter. Joshua chapter 6. At this point, Moses has passed away. He uh, has, uh, you know, passed on leadership uh, from him to Joshua. Joshua is the one that was appointed to take Moses' place. The 40 years of wandering in the wilderness has already happened, and now the children of Israel are on the borders of receiving their earthly inheritance in Canaan. There's a lot of excitement that is taking place. There have been miracles that have happened leading up to this climactic event in Joshua chapter 6 as the children of Israel follow orders that God has given to them to go make battle with the city of Jericho. The Bible says this, Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. Now Jericho was one of the strongest fortresses in all of the land of Canaan. There were many, many men inside of that city that were used to fighting battles. They were war-hardened men. It was a city of massive battlements, well fortified to withstand besiegements for quite some time. Jericho was also the principal seat of uh, this, uh, the, the god Ashtaroth, which was the goddess of the moon. It was a city of vile, degrading habits. Uh, it was the most vile of all of the cities in Canaan. And this was the first city that God had chosen for the children of Israel to make war with. It's a, it's a curious picture that we see here in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 1. He tells us that the city is straightly shut up, simply meaning that the gates are barred and bolted shut because of the children of Israel that are around the city preparing for war. Now, why is it a peculiar picture? It's a peculiar picture because, as I mentioned, this city was used to making war. These men inside of the city, they had gone through many battles. And on the outside of the city, you have this small, by human reasoning, untrained group of people that are about to make war with this massive uh, structure, this well-fortified city, and there are these well-trained men hiding out inside of the city of Jericho while God's people are marching around the city day after day. Peculiar picture. Perhaps the fear of Jericho lie in the fact that they had heard about the miraculous miracles that the Hebrew God had performed. In any ways, in any event, the Bible tells us this in verse 2. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. For six days, the children of Israel simply march around the city. Not much of a battle strategy, if you ask me. Those men inside of that city could have come out and done quick work to the children of Israel, taking care of things and sending them on their way. But there was fear in their bones. 
As they march around that city day after day, the city, uh, people inside the city wonder what in the world is going on. And then on the seventh day, they change. You know the story. They march around that city seven times. And on that seventh time, they blow the trumpets. And with a great and mighty shout, the Bible tells us that the walls of the city fell down flat. How many of you would like to have been there? What a sight. What a sight that was, this massive structure, this well-fortified city. All they did was shout, and the reverberation from their voice unleashed a heavenly arsenal as those angels of God came down and tore the walls of Jerusalem down. Everybody was destroyed that day because God's people followed their general. Now, I can imagine that Israel was kind of flushed with this victory that they just had. Excited. The first city has fallen. The greatest city has fallen. The, uh, the, the, the most trained in war has fallen. And now there just lies these other cities that aren't quite as big, that aren't quite as well fortified. And I can imagine that there's some excitement in the camp of the children of Israel. And even Joshua exudes a little excitement as well as he turns his eye to a city to the west, the city Ai, and decides that they are going to make war against that city. It was a small city in comparison to Jerusalem, only about 12,000 people inside the city. And as they make this decision, Joshua sends up a couple of spies to check things out. Joshua chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, the Bible says this, And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bethaven, on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people labor thither, for they are but few. Apparently, as they survey the scene in comparison to what they had just saw with Jericho. They didn't think they needed everybody. So their advice was uh, about two or 3,000. Joshua decides to send 3,000 up to this, make this uh, war to battle against AI. And we're told in divine commentary in the book Patriarchs and Prophets that the children of Israel at this point had become a little self Confident. A little what? As you read the narrative here in the Bible, you actually find that there's no asking God what to do next after conquering Jericho. There's no prayer saying, Lord, you, is AI the next city or is there another city you want us to go to? Is it uh, just traditional methods of warfare? Or do you want us to do something similar that we did in Jericho? There's no consulting the Lord. Joshua just says, AI is the next city, let's go up and make war. And so they send 3,000 men up to make war against AI. And the results are disastrous. Verse 4 of the Bible says this, So there went up thither of the people about 3,000 men, and they fled before the men of AI. And the men of AI smote of them about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate 
even to Shibriam, and smote them in the going down, whereof the hearts of the people melted and became as water. I mean, you can't get any stark of a contrast here. They go from this mighty victory in Jericho where they follow the general's commands. And then just moments later, days later, here they are. uh, The small little city of Ai has put the armies of God to flight and have taken 36 casualties. Can't get any stark of a contrast between these two events. Now, as a result of this, defeat. The Bible tells us this in verse 6. And Joshua rent his clothes. Can you imagine what was going through Joshua's mind? I mean, there's so many miracles that have happened in just the first six chapters of Joshua. And now all of a sudden, defeat. 36 men needlessly die. Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord unto the, until the even tide, he and the elders of Israel, and put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, At last, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. Can you picture his agony? Can you see him pouring out his heart to God in prayer? Sackcloth and ashes, his, his, his clothes being rent as he and the elders come together and ask God, why has this happened? Well, the Lord answers his prayer as he always does. Verse 10, the Lord said unto Joshua, get thee up, wherefore liest thou upon thy face? Israel hath sinned. What did Israel do? Israel hath sinned. Now, I want you to notice how many times Israel is referred to here in this Bible passage, okay? Israel, number one, has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken of the accursed thing and have also stolen and dissembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. Five times God refers to Israel as a camp. They have sinned. And because of their sin, 36 men died, and they were unsuccessful in overthrowing a small city of 12,000 people. What gives? What happened here? Now, of course, we know the back end of the story, that it wasn't the children of Israel as a whole, but there was a particular individual. Notice what it says in verse 1 of Joshua chapter 7. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing for who? For Achan, the son of Camry, the son of Zabni, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against who? I don't want you to miss this point because it's very impactful. One man's sin 
was attributed to the entire nation. And that one man's sin that was cloaked in darkness, nobody else knew about it. He was hidden in his tent, away from the discerning eyes from others. That one man's sin affected the entire camp of Israel and caused the needless death of 36 men. I think that's worth some contemplating and praying through that we wouldn't be that one man. Would you say amen? I don't want you to miss this point because it's so impactful. Sometimes we think that our sin only affects us and maybe at most it might affect our family. But from the story here, we find that there are ripple effects that happen as we, uh, as we sin. We send shock waves through the world. It affects us. It affects our family. It affects our community of faith. It affects our community at large. And it ultimately will take the life of somebody. Maybe you won't actually murder them. Probably not. But they may not make it to the kingdom of heaven because of the indulgence of that one sin. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 494, says this, God's command had been disregarded by one of those appointed to execute his judgments, and the nation was held accountable for the guilt of the transgressor. One man's sin effect upon the entire congregation. We won't take time to go through it, but in Joshua chapter 6, we find something very interesting, verses 17 through 19. Before they actually went up for the final circle around Jericho before it fell, God told Joshua that the city of Jericho was cursed. It was what? It was cursed, and that if they took of the accursed thing, they would be cursed. Makes sense, doesn't it? And that all of the silver and gold in the city of Jericho, God said, bring it into the treasury. It is mine. Okay, so it was the first fruits, if you will, as they began to uh, conquer and, 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 and gather their earthly inheritance of the promised land. So the first city that was conquered, God said, this city is cursed. Don't take any of it. If you do, you will be cursed. And all of the silver and gold is mine. Put it in the treasury. But as Achan, who was appointed to be one of those many people to plunder the city of Jericho, as he went into that city, he came into that city with a sin that he had been fostering. Sin of covetousness. And as he fostered that sin of covetousness, and as he came into that city where there was all of the silver and all of the gold and all of this uh, stuff, that old sin grabbed a hold of his heart. And when nobody was looking, he put things in his bag, he took it home, and what did he do? He hid it, buried it in the ground because he knew. What he had done was wrong. You know, sometimes we're the same way 
when we do something wrong, we do our best to try to hide it. The best thing to do is to confess it. To confess it before the Lord, to confess it before our brothers and sisters, if it's need to, if the need is there, you know, make wrongs right between individuals. The best thing to do is to make it right. But Achan decided to hide his wrong and hope that nobody would find it. Well, in the end, the Lord found it. Of course, you know how things went. God pointed out the tribe. And then he pointed out the family. Then he pointed out the household. And Achan was still holding out, hoping that the wrong person would be selected in the household. And then God pointed him out specifically. Joshua says this, verse 19 and 20 of chapter 7. Chapter 7, 19 and 20. Joshua said unto Achan, my son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession unto him and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. Sounds like a parent, doesn't he? (laughs) And Achan answered Joshua and said, indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and thus and thus have I done. goes on and he says this in verse 21. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment. As I read that, so I was reading Patriarchs and Prophets. The point is made, what good did that Babylonian garment do for him? Even when his sin was pointed out before the camp of the children of Israel, before everybody, everybody knew that Achan was the man, he still refers to that Babylonian garment as a goodly Babylonian garment. Lord, have mercy. That goodly Babylonian garment was a sinful Babylonian garment. I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight. Then I what? Did he know what his problem was? Yes or no? Did he do anything about it? Evidently not. Listen, it wasn't like uh, Achan all of a sudden had an epiphany. And all of a sudden, right there, he realized, I have a problem with covetousness. The Holy Spirit is faithful, and he convicts us of these things time and time again. And so, as we experience this in our own lives, we can expect that the Holy Spirit did the same thing to Achan. This was not the first time that he was convicted of the sin of covetousness, but he chose not to ask God to remove this sin from him. But he kept feeding it, and he kept feeding it, and he kept feeding it, making excuses for it, until it came to the point where God pointed him out as a person before the entire camp of the children of Israel and said, this is the man who has brought sin and condemnation upon your people. And then finally he acknowledges, I have coveted. You know, let me tell you something this morning. 
it usually does not end out end well when God has to use proper procedures to point out people's sin publicly. You know, God did that here in the book of Joshua, and he also does it even today. And it usually does not end up well with the individual. In this story, as we know, Achan was put to death, and usually when it happens today, the person leaves the church and never comes back again. We would do well as we study this story that instead of following the example of Achan and covering up our sin and hope that nobody finds it, we would do well to confess our sin and humble our hearts and say, Father, I have transgressed. Please remove this sin from me and give me the grace and strength to move forward in your power. It usually doesn't end out well when God has to publicly point out the sin in the camp. Well, as I mentioned already, once they confirm that Achan had taken the spoils from Jericho, find the gold, they find the silver, they find the, they find the goodly Babylonian garment. Him and his family are stoned to death put a great pile of stones over the top of them as a remembrance, a remembrance of the cost of covetousness. The story of Achan illustrates the high cost of stealing something that belongs to God. God said, this is mine. The rest you can have. But Achan said, I like this, and I'm going to take it anyways. It illustrates the high cost of taking what rightfully belongs to God. It's no trivial thing to steal something that belongs to God. Stealing from God is what brought the displeasure of God upon Israel and needlessly caused the death of 36 <coughs> men in battle. And it's interesting to me, as you, as you look at what Achan took in comparison to what was put into the treasury of God. There's really no comparison, right? I mean, it just took a little, you know, a few pieces of silver, a thing of gold, small little thing of gold, and a Babylonian garment. In comparison to all of the gold and silver that was taken into the treasury of God, it was of insignificant value. But the point wasn't how much he took. The point was that he took something that belonged to God. And when we do that, we occur the disfavor of God, not only upon us as an individual, but also upon the people of God. This is a very solemn and somber thought to think about because, Lord forbid, that I be the one that brings the disfavor of God upon his church. Probably one of the clearest things that we know about in Scripture that is oftentimes taken from the Lord are our tithes and offerings. I'll just mention this in passing. There are many examples and applications that we can make from this story, but one thing the Bible tells us in Malachi chapter 3, you've read this before, verses 8 and 9. It says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, Wherein have we robbed thee? And the answer is, In what? In tithes and offerings, the Bible says. Is it possible to rob from God? Absolutely. Achan robbed from God, and there are robbers that are in God's church today. 
taking what rightfully belongs to God. And the part that we oftentimes don't read is in verse 9, where the Bible says, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. That's the part we usually leave out. But the Bible specifically states that when we rob from God, there's a curse not only upon us, but upon the people of God, as well as we see in the story here with Achan and the children of Israel. Now, I praise the Lord that this church has a high rate of tithe payers. Somebody ought to say amen to that. Faithfully supporting the work of God. I hear reports every now and then from Jim, although I don't get into the numbers myself, but I hear reports about the faithfulness of our members who are faithfully paying tithes and offerings. But let us not take comfort in the fact that we have a 90 to 95% return on our tithes and offerings in our church because that 5 to 10% that are not returning their tithes and offerings can do some serious damage to God's church. Now, I'm not asking you to go on a witch hunt and find out who those people are. We need to just pray for them. You know who you are. You know who you are that is, 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 is sees that money that comes in and, and desires to keep it for yourself to try to make ends meet, to pay your bills or whatever it may be. Trust in the Lord and allow him to provide for all your needs. You know, I wonder to myself what it would look like in God's church if we had 100% faithfulness in returning tithes and offerings. You think there would be a difference? I'm not convinced. Do you think there would be a difference? The Bible tells us there would be a difference in Malachi chapter 3. The Bible talks about how he would throw open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing so rich that we would not be able to receive it all. Where are those blessings? How come I don't see them happening on a, a congregational level? Sure, we see them happen in our own lives, and I'm sure you all have stories about how God has provided for your needs because you've faithfully been returning back tithes and offerings. Praise the Lord for that. Keep doing it. But I want to see that type of blessing on a larger scale within the church of God. How about you? I want to see God be able to open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings. I want to see God give us victories like he gave the children of Israel when they conquered Jericho. You know, it's interesting to me, the conquering of Jericho, it was little work, but great results. You see, we oftentimes do lots of work with little results. Is the preacher preaching the truth this morning? What if we had it the other way around, where we could do just a little work as we follow our general's command and have these great results that happen because we're faithful to God in the little things. Nobody knows when you're unfaithful in paying your tithes and offerings. That's between you and the Lord and the treasurer. But he doesn't broadcast that stuff. He keeps it very confidential. We have a very good church treasurer. Somebody ought to say amen to that. Keep them in your prayers. Faithfulness in paying our tithes. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 9 and 10, our scripture reading this morning, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. That sounds like a blessing to me. Does it sound like a blessing to you? 
God wants to open up the windows of heaven and pour out these types of blessings upon us. And I like how the proverb tells us to return back to the Lord our first fruits. Maybe you already do this, but for those of you that don't, it's always a good idea to put God first in your finances. When you get your increase, cut off that 10% right off the top and give it back to God. Somebody should say amen to that. Let God expand and stretch that 90% however much he needs to, but put God first in returning back a faithful tithe and offering and stand back and watch God bless the rest. The Bible tells us that the barns would be filled with plenty and the wine presses will burst forth with new wine. God will give us more than we can handle. But what I really want to talk about in closing here is the real sin that lie at the root of Achan's situation and the root that is robbing God today, and that is a transgression of the 10th commandment. You know that commandment, right? Thou shall not covet. There's only one thing in all of Scripture that the Bible tells us that we can covet. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Bible tells us that we should covet earnestly the best gifts. And it's interesting to me the reason why Paul says we can covet the gifts because as we covet the gifts, we are not taking anything from anybody. But the 10th commandment specifically forbids the coveting of anything that belongs to your neighbor. Covetousness is running rampant in our world today. Unfortunately, while many sins in our church meet swift detection and even punishment, the sin of covetousness largely goes unnoticed. And I think that's partly because covetousness in certain, at a certain level has become the norm in our society and even expected at some level in our church. We talk about it in our conversations. And in fact, Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. Somebody should say amen to that. That sounds like happiness to me. Be content with what you have. Don't be uncontent, wanting always what somebody else has. That's the breaking of the 10th commandment. Some of us might be sitting back smugly saying, well, I pay my tithes and I pay my offerings. The preacher's not preaching to me today. Mm, I wouldn't be so quick to say that. I think every single one of us here this morning inside of this building at some point in the recent past or in the distant past, or in the near future or the far future, are going to be tempted with breaking the 10th commandment. It's modeled for us today in society. You can watch it in television, any forms of media, entertainment, television, internet, magazines, newspapers. It is modeled for us what we should covet and desire. Yet we are told by Jesus in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, take heed and beware of 
covetousness. Why do you think Jesus said that? I think Jesus said that because he didn't want his church to have the same demise that Achan had. He didn't want his church to have that sin of covetousness so deeply rooted inside of their hearts that there was nothing left that God could do for them except give them the wages of sin. Beware, Jesus said, of covetousness. Yet, with all of this, we are told in Patriarchs and Prophets, notwithstanding all these warnings that we have read in Scripture, covetousness abounds. It wreaks havoc in our families, in our relationships with our friends. It creates bitterness and hatred among the poor towards the rich and oppression of the rich to the poor. It is depleting the treasury house of God and it is causing dissension and strife within our church. I'm not speaking to any specific issues here, but perhaps there is. Yet we are told that God's church, that among God's church members, in good and regular standing, there are at last many Achans. I don't like reading that. I really don't. You know, as I read it uh, in preparation for this, it really, it really hurt my heart. Because there really is no excuse for there to be an Achan inside of our church. Amen? There's no excuse for it. God has given to us everything that we need to be able to conquer this deeply rooted sin of covetousness in our lives. We can all be set free from the shackles of covetousness. It's all right here in the Word of God. That statement should not be a reality because we serve such a mighty and powerful God. But she is speaking the truth that yet in our church, there are members in good and regular standing who are modern-day Achans. I don't know who this is. I'm not really, I, I, trust me, I'm not speaking to any particular individual this morning. If the Spirit is convicting you and you think I'm talking about you, that's probably the Spirit, because I have no individual in my mind in preparation for this sermon. But really what we need to be doing this morning is this, as we think about this concept in closing, is not try to go through our mental list of people in our church and say, well, that person could be the Achan, and that person could be the Achan, and this person could be the Achan. What we really need to be doing is asking the Lord, am I the Achan? Am I the Achan in the camp? that is bringing the disfavor of God upon me, on my family, and on my church, and on my community. And Lord, if I am that Achan, please change my heart and give me a desire to make right the wrongs, to confess the sin in my life that is bringing your disapproval upon my family and upon my church. That's really the prayer we ought to be praying. And really, that's what Achan should have done. You know, if Achan would have come to Joshua when he saw those 36 men die in the battle of Ai and say, I'm the result of that, I have sinned and confessed that sin 
to Joshua and the camp of the children of Israel, I believe God would have forgiven him and he would have sustained his life. But because he waited until the very last moment to confess, that confession really wasn't a confession. All he was really trying to do was try to get out of the consequences and the results that would take place because of his sin. Let me read to you a statement here. It didn't get in my notes, unfortunately, but it is worth meditating on. This is from Sons and Daughters of God, page 65. It says this. The last commandment condemns covetousness. And then she defines this. Every selfish desire, every degree of discontent, every act of overreaching, every selfish gratification works to the strengthening and the developing of a character which will destroy the Christ-likeness of his human agent and close the gates of the city of God against him. Lord, have mercy. I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want that to happen to any of us. I want God's gates to be open to every single one of us. We need to grapple with this because I think uh, covetousness has become so ingrained and so overlooked in our religious community that we don't even realize when it exists. For an example, just the other day, I was walking through Lowe's and I picked up a a piece of uh, trim uh, for the bottom, a piece of baseboard trim that I'm going to put in my house. And and I put it on the cart and we were pushing it along through the store and and, and, and the kids were playing on the cart. They knocked it over and it hit the side of the cart and dented the side of it. Now, who wants a piece of dented trim to put in their house, right? So my first thought was I'm going to take that dented piece of trim back over where the trim was and I'm going to switch it out and get a new piece. And as I was running over there, I thought, no, I'm not going to do that because that's just not right. Right? It's just so deeply ingrained we become to expect that type of acting in our community when the Bible tells us that this is the type of action that will keep the gates of the kingdom of heaven closed to us. It's so deeply ingrained that only God is the one that can reveal it to us. And so my my challenge or my appeal to you this morning is this. Lord, please help me to see any sin in my life that may be bringing, you know, separating me from you and bringing your disfavor upon my family and upon my religious community. Really what we're praying for is, Lord, if I'm the ache and show me ahead of time so that I can make my wrongs right. Let's stop pointing at the other Achans that we think are in the camp let the Lord do that work on them because he's much more effective at it than we are. Somebody should, should, should say amen to that. Yes, yes, let, let the Lord do that work and, and let the Lord work on my own heart and say, Lord, am I coveting anything? Am I holding anything? Am I burying or hiding anything in my life? Keeping skeletons in the closet, acting one way here and another way over there. Lord, help me to have a life that is in harmony with you and your word. Amen? Let's pray for that this morning. As we close our time together, would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you for these stories in the Bible that sometimes make us a little uncomfortable and we like to just skim over them and move on to the good stuff. 
But Lord, you've put them there for a reason. So that we wouldn't do the same thing in our own lives. That we may learn from those who have gone before us. And Lord, we're praying as a church family. As we come before you. That if we are the Akins in the camp. That you would show us that sin. We don't want to be removed. We want to stay with the family. Father, we want to bring with us to that family relationship the blessings of God. So, Lord, speak to our hearts in the stillness of our devotional time this next week. And show us, Father, if there is anything that is separating us from you. Lord, we don't want to see needless deaths. We don't want to see decrepacy in the church and death. We want to see life, Lord. We want to follow the orders of our general and go from one uninterrupted victory to the next. Bless us to this end, Lord, I pray. Keep us close by your side this next week. For we ask it in the merciful and loving name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.